morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming, joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. And it's good to be back here among you people. Last week, it was, uh, uh, I had the pleasure of being able to get away uh, with my wife for just a weekend away as we celebrated our 19th wedding anniversary. And thank you very much. She married me when I was 10. And... Oh, that's not true. You know better than that. We actually, uh, she, she uh, when we did get married, Caroline was young. She was impressionable. She didn't know me very well at the time. Uh, she, made, uh, she made the decision to say yes, and now I can say 19 years later, she knows all of my faults. She knows all of my bumps and warts and bruises, and she still loves me anyways, and I am very blessed to have her as my wife. And honey, thank you for marrying me, and thank you for giving us the opportunity to get away. We did enjoy that time, and I want to thank Marty Youngblood uh, for also filling in for me last week and for ministering the Word of God to you. Uh, he is a great friend and he's a wonderful church member and we are, uh, we're very grateful to have him and I'm grateful that he was able to, to stand in my stead in my absence last week. I don't know if you're like me or not, but when January rolls around every year, I start, it's, it's, it's contemplation time for me at some points. I start thinking about things, thinking about the future and, and thinking about how the year is going to turn out. And, and sometimes I, I begin to wonder what happy times may await us in the coming year, what sadnesses may come. I often wonder what kind of uh, uh, reacquaintances I may make with some friends and, and, and will, I, will I make some new friends along the way. And sometimes I often wonder, will I have to unfortunately say goodbye to, to friends? If I wonder about health. I wonder if good health will be what defines the upcoming year or will it be, will it be sickness? Sometimes I wonder about setbacks. Will the year be marked by many setbacks or will the year be marked by, by strides in, towards the future? Here's what I know to be true. Nothing remains the same. 2017 will not be like 2016 was, nor was 2016 like the year before it. Twists and turns will come in the road. There will be ups and downs. Things will happen that will not leave me the same way as I am now. And the truth of the matter is, the same can be said for each and every one of you as well. The, truth, the, the way that the, the things will happen in your lives, you'll not be the same a year from now as you are today. Our lives are not static. All of us will be affected. And that really brings the question, what, what comes to our minds, well, how am I going to be affected? What, what way is, is things going to turn out? Or specifically, the question could be this, what will this year make of me? How will my life be different come this time next year? And it is with that consideration and those thoughts and those questions in the back of my mind that I want you to know that this morning we're going to begin a new sermon series. Uh, a sermon series that, quite frankly, to me, will be one of the most ambitious undertakings of my pastoral ministry. Today I want us to begin a systematic study through the Gospel of Mark. And I believe that is going to be a study that, from my best guess, is going to take us all of the rest of this year and well on into next year for us to be able to cover all the material that is going to be there. And, and we, of course, will deviate from the Gospel of Mark as the year progresses at various times for various reasons. But the majority of the sermons that I'm going to preach, Lord willing, this year will come from the Gospel of Mark. And so in light of my thoughts and questions concerning this new year, I've been, I've been pondering how my life and how your life how the corporate life of this church here at Ivy Creek will be affected by this journey through the Gospel of Mark. What will our study of Mark make of us? How will we be different in the coming year? 
How will we be different this time next year? Here's what I know to be true, and this is why that question is important. You see, the Bible tells us that God's Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. The Bible tells us that that it is alive and that it is active and that it is sharper than than any two-edged sword, that it penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow, that it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. The Bible tells us that when the gospel is proclaimed, that it, when it goes out, that it never returns to him void. So what that means is that a careful study of this book, this gospel of Mark, will not leave us as it found us. We won't be the same as a result of going through and studying this book. We will not remain static. We will be changed. The question is how? My prayer is, is that the change that that takes place in our individual lives and in the corporate life of this church will be that we will become more and more like Jesus to whom this gospel testifies and points our attention on every page. And I think it's important that we recognize that a study of the gospel of Mark will do exactly that. It will point us to Jesus. In fact, the entire book is about him. The very first words that Mark writes as he pens this gospel tell us this. The gospel reads this way. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how he begins his writing. And so what we learn from that very first opening verse is that the gospel of Mark is not about Mark. It's about Jesus. This morning, my goal is to provide you with an introduction and really an overview of this gospel that sort of will allow us to kind of see the ebb and flows and and give us an idea of the pace that Mark takes, gives us an idea of what we're going to learn and some things that maybe we can hang our hats on as we work our way through this, this book over the course of the next year. Perhaps the best place to begin is with the author and who he is. The general consensus among scholarship, both both modern but also ancient, is that uh, the author of this book is a man named Mark. And those familiar with the book of Acts will remember that Mark was, he was named John Mark there, but this is the same guy who was a, a cousin to Barnabas. And that he went with Barnabas and the apostle Paul on their first missionary journey that they took together that the book of Acts records for us. And somewhere along the way on that first missionary journey, for some unknown reason, Mark decided he wanted to go back to his home in Jerusalem. So he left the band of Barnabas and and Paul and he went back home. And that created a significant trouble because when the second missionary journey was going to happen and Paul and Barnabas were gathering their crew, Barnabas wanted to take Mark along again. And Paul says, I'm not going with him. He abandoned us on the first first trip. I'm not taking him with me on the second one. And such an argument, such a trouble arose between Barnabas and Paul over John Mark that they split and Barnabas took John Mark and they went one direction and Paul and his new partner Silas went another direction. However, later in Scripture, if we read a lot of Paul's letters, we recognize that whatever the difference that had happened between Mark and Paul was reconciled. Because they became friends and they were able to become not only friends, but more importantly, they became partners in the gospel together. In fact, Mark would serve as Paul's aide and later as a delegate of his on an important mission to Asia Minor. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 11, Paul referenced how useful Mark was in service to him and to the Lord. It's interesting, Mark not only served right alongside the apostle 
Paul, but he served right alongside the apostle Peter as well. In fact, in 1 Peter 5.13, we read that Peter affectionately referred to Mark as his son. In fact, as early as the first century, Mark was said to be the one who wrote down accurately, though not in order, all that Peter remembered of the things said and done by the Lord. Consequently, the general consensus is that Mark's gospel is an account of the remembrances that the apostle Peter often preached about concerning the life and the ministry of Jesus. While there is some debate as to regard exactly when Mark penned his gospel, most believe that Mark's was the first gospel written somewhere between the mid to late 60s A.D. And it was probably somewhere during that time that, that after it had been written that both Matthew and Luke, most scholars believe that they made use of Mark's gospel when they wrote their own. What we'll see as we study through this gospel, you'll no doubt find that as one commentator has put it, it is a gospel narrative that is on steroids. You see, unlike Matthew, whose intended audience was the Jews, and therefore he began his gospel by talking about uh, Jesus' birth narrative and, and, and positioning it in such a way so that they understood him as being the king of the Jews. And unlike Luke, whose intended audience was the Greek-speaking Gentiles of the world, and so he began with the gospel narrative there of the, the birth of Christ in such a way so that Jesus could be presented as the Son of Man. And unlike the gospel of John, that, that began his gospel in such a way as pointing back to the beginning of time and pointing to the fact that Jesus existed before time began, you don't find any of that kind of talk in Mark's gospel. Mark doesn't give us any of the lengthy stories about Jesus' birth or his childhood. He doesn't provide us with any genealogical lists. He doesn't give us any theological laden prologues. Instead, what Mark does is he goes straight to the ministry of Jesus, and he does so with amazing speed and energy. And perhaps Mark begins his gospel this way is because he, he as many scholars believe, is intended to write to the Romans, the Romans of the world, those Christians who were there in Rome who were undergoing great uh, significant persecution at the hands of Nero. The Romans were known to be a people of action. And consequently, as we will note as we study it, Mark's gospel is quickly paced and it is very action-packed. In fact, the most often repeated word throughout the, the gospel of Mark is the word immediately. And Mark uses that word over 40 times as he makes his way through. He's constantly keeping us on the move. He never lets us stay still for very long. And though Mark is concerned with the teaching of Jesus, he is equally, if not more concerned, with recounting the actions and the miracles of Jesus. In fact, when you compare the gospel side by side, and by that I mean Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll find that Luke records 27 of the parables that Jesus taught. When you go over to Matthew and you read there, you'll find that Matthew records 20 of the parables that Jesus taught. Mark, on the other hand, only records seven. On the other hand, though Mark is significantly shorter than both Matthew and Luke, you'll find that there Mark records more of the miracles that Jesus performed than either Luke or Matthew. As a result of all this, what you begin to see is why people refer to Mark as the go 
gospel. It's always on the move. It's always talking about the things that Jesus did as well as the things that Jesus taught. Now, as you might expect, the first half of the book is just jam-packed with action. Verses, I mean, from chapters 1 through 8, Jesus is, is beginning his public ministry in and around Galilee. And that's where he established himself as one who had authority, as a teacher who would perform miracles. And his authority as the Son of God, as the Messiah, is on display at every turn. I like the way Mark Strauss summarizes the first part of Mark's gospel. He says, Jesus calls disciples who drop everything to follow him. He captivates his hearers with remarkable teaching. He commands demons to come out of people and they obey. He heals the sick with a compassionate touch. He quiets a storm with a strong rebuke. And what is the response of all the people who are there who witness all of these miracles and these things to take place. Well, it's awe and it's wonder, it's amazement, it's marvel. They can't get over who he is and what he's doing. In fact, after having just quieted a storm in chapter 4 with a, with a verbal command, his own disciples look at one another and says, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who indeed? That really is the question that seems to be on everybody's mind in the first chapters of Mark's gospel. And it is that understanding that leads me to, to point to you three questions that I think are important for us to kind of get lodged into our mind as we embark upon this journey through the gospel of Mark. Three questions that I think will constantly come up as we study this, this book. And the first one that I've outlined for you and put on your outline this morning is this. The question number one is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? See, his miracles and the teaching that he engaged in that Mark continually records confront his disciples and it confronts the crowds that follow him and the interest that Jesus generates pushes folks to ask that question. They, they're amazed by the power and the authority that undergirds all the things that he does. And so they want to know, who is this Jesus? They're not the only group that want to know who he is, though. As you might imagine, as we continue to study Mark's gospel, we find that there was a lot of opposition that came his way. His teaching and his, his bold miracles did not go unnoticed by the religious elite. They were not as much amazed by him as they were put off by him, though. In fact, it doesn't take long before Jesus begins to experience the opposition of, of the religious leaders. And to quote Strauss once more, those leaders are scandalized when Jesus claims to forgive sins and when he hangs out with sinners and when he treats the revered Sabbath commands as apparently optional. As a result, they begin to plot against him seeking ways to eliminate this upstart who challenges their influence among the people. They accuse him of being in league with the devil. But nevertheless, what we also see is that his popularity continues to grow and grow, and he continues to amaze all who encounter the power of God that is working through it. As Mark Gospel accounts continues, we find Jesus continuing to perform miracles. He, he casts out a legion of demons. He, he heals an incurable disease. He he raises a dead girl back to life. He walks on the water. He feeds large, massive crowds with little more than just a few loaves of bread and a few fish, and he does this twice. Yet Mark continually records that Jesus didn't want his identity being known. He's secretive about what he's doing. He, he silences the demons who cry out his identity, and he tells those who are beneficiaries of his miracles not to go and tell anybody what he had done. And what happens is when we come with this reading in the Mark's gospel, by the time that we get to chapter 8, quite frankly, he's, he's so mysterious and enigmatic. Even though we know who he is, 
The question that seems to be on everybody's mind continues to be, what, what is this man? Under what authority, under what power does he work? Who is he and why did he come? Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, that is who Mark has identified him to be in chapter 1, verse 1. But even with that declaration, by the time that we get to chapter 8, there appears to be much about Jesus who those who followed him had yet to fully understand. And that's why I believe that chapter 8 is actually a turning point in the gospel. In fact, I want you to turn there this morning. I'm going to take my text from there. I want you to see, in my attempt to try to give you an overview of this, of this entire book, I want you to see how crucial chapter 8 is and really where the turning, turning point, the tipping point of this gospel happens right here. Because in verse 22 and following, we begin to see a miracle that takes place and we see something happen there and then we see a, a confession of the disciples and then we see the application of that confession to the lives of his disciples. And all of those things kind of come together to help us understand the main point that I believe Mark is trying to drive us to. Remember, as I begin reading this morning, the question is, who is Jesus? In verse 22 of chapter 8, we begin to read this. Jesus came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. He looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up and he was restored and he saw everyone clearly. Then Jesus sent him away to his house and said, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Now, Jesus and his disciples went out to the town of Caesarea Philippi and on the road, he asked his disciples saying to them, who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke these words openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's take just a moment to bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you have given it to us. Now, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to understand it, and understand who you are and understand who we are and how we're to be affected, and how our lives are to be changed as a result of encountering you. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen. 
You'll be glad to know I'm not going to engage in a full exposition of this passage this morning. I'll save that for a later time when we get to it. Nevertheless, I want you to see just how fully aware Jesus is of the questions regarding who he is and what his identity is. People are trying to figure him out. They're watching everything that he does. They're listening to what he says. And yet it's obvious they do not yet perceive who he really is. And the story of that man who was blind, who was then healed by Jesus, gives us illustration of that fact. Jesus does something that, quite frankly, probably gives us the heebie-jeebies to think about. This man born blind comes to him and Jesus, Jesus heals him by spitting on his eyes. That's not something that we do regularly in our culture today. And when, it, when we read that, we think about that. It's, that's, that's weird to us. But nevertheless, that's how Jesus goes about it. He lays his hands on him. And then he asks him, so tell me what you see. And he says, well, I can see, but people out there look like trees that are walking around. And what that tells us is, is that his sight has been restored, but he doesn't see clearly. He has the ability to see things, but not with clarity. Hang on to that. Because Jesus, Mark moves us from that miracle to the next section. And immediately after Mark tells us that event takes place, he asks this question of his disciples. He says, who do men say that I am? And that's the question that's been hanging over this entire section. Who is Jesus? Well, note the varied responses of his disciples. They say, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. And some, having seen everything that you do, they say that you're some other prophet who's come back to life. In other words, the people, what they do is recognize that there's something special about Jesus, but they do not perceive who He truly is. They see, but they don't have clarity in what they see. But then Jesus turns that question back around on the disciples. He said, but tell me, who do you say that I am? And then it's Peter's turn, typical Peter fashion. He steps up, he says, you are the Christ. In other words, Peter's response shows that a true understanding of who Jesus is goes far beyond Jesus just simply being some sort of miracle worker. It goes far beyond someone who just simply teaches with authority. It goes far beyond somebody who just had special powers. No, Peter began to recognize and knows here, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. And what that tells us is that clarity with regard to who Jesus is, is actually possible. Just as the blind man, when Jesus touched him that second time, was then able to see clearly, so Peter is able to express with clarity who Jesus is. And so based upon what we read here, based upon what Mark has already told us, based upon what we see happening right here in this teaching, we recognize that the answer to that first question of who Jesus is, the answer to that question is simply this. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Now, I believe that is really the driving force behind the first half of this gospel. Mark wants us to identify who Jesus truly is. And the reason that I take the point to make all of this to you and tell you that, that chapter 8 is the turning point is because of what Jesus says next. Because, you see, immediately following Peter's announcement that he is the Christ, Mark tells us that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, that he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, that he must be killed, and that after three days rise again. So what we realize is that the, the first half of God, Mark's gospel points to the question, who is Jesus? 
Well, the second half points to the, to, the, to the next question that comes from that answer. If he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, then the second question that comes into our minds is this, what kind of Messiah is he? That's the second question that Mark begins to push us toward. And it doesn't take us long to get to the answer. Because immediately from what Jesus tells his disciples, we learn that he will be a Messiah who will suffer for those that he came to serve. Jesus as the suffering servant on his way to the cross becomes the focus of the second half of Mark's gospel. In fact, if you're right there in chapter 8, just turn maybe a page or two over to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And if you're one of those kind of people that like to underline in your Bibles and you like to write in the margins, this is a great verse to underline and a great verse to, to, to highlight in your Bibles. Mark 10, verse 45, because it's there that we read one of those astounding statements that really serves as a key verse to helping us understand who Jesus is and why he came to do what he did. Jesus announces to his disciples this. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Remember, Jesus back in chapter 8 had already said that he would be rejected. He's already said that he would suffer. He's already said that he would ultimately be killed. Here we see the reason that all of that is going to take place. All of that will happen because he willingly is serving others by giving his life as a ransom in their place. So in light of what Mark has told us, note the second answer to the second question. What kind of Messiah would Jesus be? Well, the answer is this. He is the suffering servant who gave his life in order to save sinners from their sins. And listen, the rest of Mark's gospel, it just takes us on the journey that ultimately took Jesus to the cross, where he was ultimately crucified between two criminals as if he himself was a criminal. On that cross, we read that he was mocked and that he was reviled. And finally, we read that he breathed his last. And when that happened, Mark records for us that the sun refused to shine from the, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, from, from about noon until about three o'clock in the afternoon when the sun should have been at its brightest, it was completely dark. The Bible also tells us at that particular moment that the, that the veil in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the people was torn in two from top to bottom that that took place as well. And having witnessed all of that, at the foot of the cross was this centurion soldier, this Roman soldier whose responsibility it was to carry out the crucifixion of Jesus, saw all of that take place, and he looked up at the lifeless body of Christ hanging on the cross, and he uttered these words, Truly this man was the Son of God. You see... All that Jesus had done, all that he had taught, all of it had happened and it had given testimony to who Jesus truly was and why he came. So that really is what Mark wants to portray to us. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Well, what kind of Messiah is He? He's the suffering servant who came to give His life as a ransom in place of sinners just like you and just like me so that we might be saved. He served. He did not come to be served but to serve us by sacrificing Himself. That, I would submit to you, is the central point and the primary goal of Mark's gospel. But there is, however, there remains one last question that we must ask. 
You see, there is a question that we ask not of the text, but a question that we ask of ourselves. And the question is this. In light of who Jesus is and what he came to do, in light of the fact that he is the Messiah who came to suffer for sinners in order to save them, then we come to the third question of our text, and it's this. What difference does it make? We might even ask it this way, as I did in my introduction. What will our study of the Gospel of Mark make of us? How will it change us? Honestly, what difference does the fact that Jesus is the Messiah come to save sinners from their sins by serving them through sacrificing? What difference does that make? Well, I want to point you back once again to that pivotal passage in Mark 8. Remember that once Jesus had said he would be killed and that he would be suffered and that, and that all those things would happen to him, Peter rebuked him. And just as a freebie to you this morning, rebuking Jesus is never a good idea. Never turns out well. In fact, Jesus turns around and he looks Mark straight in the eye and he tells him, he calls him Satan. He rebukes Peter. And he says, get behind me. And he gives the reason why. He says, you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. In other words, Peter, you've got your eyes and your thoughts resting on things that are happening right here and right now. You're not thinking about it from God's perspective. And then Mark follows that interesting interchange with a teaching moment in which Jesus tells his disciples that what was going to happen to him, they too must be ready to endure themselves. In fact, let me read once more for you those verses. I just want you to hear them once again. Verse 34 says, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Pick up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Friends, these words penetrate our hearts and minds. They should. They tell us unequivocally that an encounter with Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who came to suffer for the sinners that he came to save, will not leave us as it found us. In fact, his words force us to identify and deal with the things that matter most to us. And what Jesus tells us is that a choice must be made between these things and him. See, as it pertains to Jesus, we cannot remain neutral. Once we encounter him, once we see him for who he really is, then we're forced to decide where our allegiance will be. And as Jesus clearly states, such a decision has eternal ramifications. You see, in that first century world, to pick up one's cross, it meant that any would-be followers of Jesus would be willing to bear the pain and the persecution that came along with being one of his disciples. His words speak of allegiance and, and of obedience. In other words, the disciple and the follower of Jesus must be ready to share in the same fate that Jesus would encounter. As one writer has put it, a cross-bearing disciple is the only kind of disciple that there is. Consequently, Jesus says that those who are willing to lose their lives are the ones who will save it. And I want you to know such a concept runs completely afoul of everything that we know in our culture and in our world today. The world tells us that we've got to look out for number one. The world tells us that we're to pamper ourselves. The world tells us that we're to save ourselves. Even as kids, we learn the phrase that, that, that finders are keepers and losers are what? 
Jesus says just the opposite. Jesus says that it is the ones who are willing to lose their lives. Those are the ones who wind up finding their lives. Those are the ones whose lives are saved. The eternal dimension of the nature of how we are affected by an encounter with Christ, the suffering servant, is made clear by the question that Jesus asks, what will it profit if a man gains the whole world and then loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, here Jesus moves past what can be seen and touched and amassed and counted in this life. And he lifts our eyes past the present to eternity. And when he speaks of the soul, he speaks of that part of us that goes on to live long after our physical bodies have died. You see, there are many who would say to you today that once you're dead, that that's all that there is, that nothing happens past that. I want you to know the scriptures teach us completely differently from that. That we will live in eternity after we have died in this life. The question is where or with whom will you spend eternity? This is why I believe that when we come to the gospel of Mark, encountering the fact that our lives will be changed as a result of coming in contact with the Jesus that Mark tells us is of critical importance. See, as we read and study about Jesus over the next year or so, we're going to be continually forced to reckon with who he is and with the demands that he makes upon our lives as a result of who he is. We're not going to be able to remain passive. We're going to have to decide whether we will follow Christ or whether we will reject him. And as Jesus put it in clear as possible terms in verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So understanding all of that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. You and I cannot remain the same once we encounter Jesus the Messiah because he is a suffering servant who came to save sinners by dying in their place. And he rightfully has the authority to make his claim upon our lives. You probably noticed I gave you an answer to, to question one. I gave you an answer to question two. I didn't provide you an answer to question three. I did that intentionally because I want you to grapple with it. I want you to grapple with what, it, what difference does it make that Jesus is who he is and that he came to do what he came to do. What does it mean for you? But even though I didn't provide you an answer, let me at least state this for you this morning. I believe that the claim that Christ makes upon us requires us to surrender our lives to him, knowing how much we have been forgiven by his service and by his sacrifice. I believe that it means that we must repent of our sins that we must have godly sorrow because of our rebellion against him. I believe it means that we must relinquish our hold on all the things and all the stuff that this world offers. And it means that we must turn loose of the control that we think we have on our lives. I believe that it means we must trust in Christ as our only means of salvation and that we must commit ourselves to following him and obeying his commands. I believe it means that we must share in the cost of discipleship and that potentially it may mean that we have to suffer as a result of our sharing the good news of the gospel with others. In short, 
The claim that the Lord Jesus makes upon our life means losing our life for the sake and for the sake of for his sake and for the sake of the gospel. In order that our lives might be saved. I believe that this is what Mark will point us to again and again and again as we make our way through it. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know this. This is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together.